Okay. Good morning. Yeah. Good evening. Good morning. So, how are you? I am great. You sound bloody great. I really, am. <laughs> I really am. I woke up. I listened to the song "Ain't Nothing Gonna Break My Stride," and as my, um, you know, like, uh, get me, get me pumped, ready to listen to this, ready to have my mood brought down. <laughs> yeah, well. I was thinking that, you know, this being a podcast where we talk about serious things and laugh, um, the first half of that is pretty much what we've got coming up. There's not a lot of laughs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we'll see how we go. I know right? what we're going to listen to. I haven't listened to it since last year, and I anticipate that it's going to be hard. But um, ain't nothing going to break my stride, you know? So we should probably say at this point, um, by the way, that sound you can hear is rain on the tin roof here. Um, it's a rainy night. Um, I was just going to say, we wanted to let you know that what you're about to hear uh, is two conversations that we recorded last year, and they follow on directly from what we shared with you in the previous two episodes of this podcast. So you may want to go back and listen to those uh, in advance of listening to this because um, things will maybe make a bit more sense. Um, this is another step on the journey. Um, but we also wanted to make sure that you know that we're talking about some, um, you know, it's hard stuff to talk about, death, dying and COVID, which... We've been talking about relentlessly, it seems, for the last year and a half. So, and it doesn't show any sign of easing up yet. Um, Wait, can I say another thing? Yeah. I'm thinking about everybody going through this right now. So many more than even when we recorded. So, I think while maybe some of the stuff might be, some of the processes may be improved or a little different than I think what I might describe. Yeah, I, I think about that every day. People who are who are going through it themselves for the first time. So maybe this will be comforting to hear about, to to know that you're not alone. That's what I hope, anyway. But we'll we'll listen, and we'll talk about it afterwards. What was your mum like? She was, um, she was bright. She was funny. She was articulate and eloquent, I think, in her speech. And then the thing that I think was one of the most important things to her in her life, which was singing. Um, so she had an amazing voice. So if you knew her for very long, you definitely heard her sing. Um, so I think we spoke on the 16th of June and 
Um, do you do you want to sort of sketch in what what happened since then? Because I think we'd spoken on a weekend, oh boy. and you were yep. Yep. Ju- just on the. You were just telling me that that your mom and dad and stepdad were going to have a karaoke night. Exactly. Um, there, I was so angry and frustrated um, because Maricopa County, where I, in the county where I live in Arizona was opening back up their bars and restaurants, you know, kind of with no plan and no real guidance. There wasn't like mass guidance or, you know, distance guidance. They just sort of opened everything back up. And my stepfather, um, who's a, a Trump believer, uh, sort of, you know, decided it had, it was worth it to him to start back up this karaoke night he hosts because he wanted 300 bucks a week that he was making from it. Um, and you know, karaoke singing is like, I think they, you know, they've done studies and singing is probably one of the worst things you could do inside with coronavirus <laughs> because, mm. you know, you're projecting and the air particles are leaving your mouth and, um, you're inside a room you know the air is sort of circulating around and so yeah he decided to do a karaoke night we had actually fought about it um but I had kind of given up because he was going to do what he was going to do but you know my mom was very scared my mom's um had asthma since she was a little kid and she's had a lot of other you know she's diabetic she's extremely obese she's um oh you know she's 65 She's got things that are like, you should not get COVID. (laughs) And I had sent her, you know, I had actually said to her pretty directly and to him too, mom can't get sick or she'll die, you know. And, um, you know, I have five siblings and at least four of them have also said that to her. That kind of made me feel better knowing we were all sort of saying it, but also worse because, because I hate that those were things I said to her, given the state we're in now. Um, So he did the nights. He did the karaoke nights. He'd probably already done them when you and I had chatted, actually, now Mm. I think about it. Um, He'd probably been doing them for a couple weeks. And, uh, I don't know, like four days after we chatted, I'm going to say, it was about then. It was like Thursday, Friday. Um, I get a message and it's my stepfather's in the ER with tested positive for COVID and he's very sick. Um, and the moment that I heard that, I was like, oh shit, that means my mom's going to get sick. And here we are. We're at, in my mind, the worst case that I've had, the worst case scenario that I've thought about since Corona came over, you know, to the U S like, it's always been in the back of my mind. Like, like think about what's scary about this virus. And like, what I think of as the worst case besides, I guess, myself getting it and dying it. But, you know, I didn't really think about that. It's just like my mom getting it. Um, So she did and she got sick she started showing symptoms, you know, just a couple of days, maybe the same day I texted you, actually. So I, I, run, I run the time when um, 
when your stepdad went into hospital? Yeah, she, um, he went into the hospital. They didn't admit him. They kind of, and this is, I think what's interesting and different about COVID, um, especially for that generation, you know, the, you know, they, they looked at his lungs. He's very, he had been very sick at home and his oxygen saturation levels were pretty low, which is kind of what they tell you to keep an eye on. But they said, um, you're not sick enough for us to admit you because we don't really have a lot of hospital beds. Mm -hmm. So go home, despite the fact that you're like the sickest you've ever been. And so he went home. And then basically my mom, you know, was sick kind of immediately. Um, And so how long did it take for your mom to go into hospital? It took two days. She started getting sick on Friday. Um, and we, we had her, you know, we dropped, we gave her an oxygen saturation levels monitor and we had her report in the thing about them being at home together is my stepfather was so sick. We couldn't count on him being able to take care of her. Right. And none of us could go to the house to take care of her. Because they're, they're in quarantine, I guess. Exactly. I mean, we could have gone, but we would have been exposing ourselves, you know. Kind of the thing is, with a small house like that, if you go in, it's very hard. You're taking care of a sick person in a small house yeah. to, like, avoid avoid getting it yourself. Mm-hmm. So my mom was at home. Her step, You know, they, her husband was so sick, he, he wasn't awake. And so... Basically, my siblings, you know, we all got on FaceTime with her um, at least three times a day. I had her check her blood pressure and her oxygen stats and had, you know, checked in on how she was doing three to five times a day and just tried to call her as much as possible. I mean, while letting her sleep because that was the closest we could do to like physically being in there to help her. And we were really worried about her crashing at home. So she was at home. We were doing that. Um, and she was sort of hanging in there with her numbers. Um, but every day, it was a little bit harder for her to breathe. And then Monday morning, she called her doctor with the numbers she had. And they were like, you need to go to the hospital right now. So she called an ambulance because her husband wasn't well enough to take her. The ambulance came and took her to the ER. And... Um, you know, you can't visit. Um, the, hosp- the hospitals are all restricted now. There's no visitors allowed. And that, and that was, uh, what, eight days ago, nine days ago she went into the hospital? That, right? that was, let's see. Yeah, it would have been nine days ago. So it was Monday. Okay. What is it today? Sunday. It's almost two weeks ago, actually. Right. Now. And, and what, what's, what's been her um, progress over that time? Like... She's there on her own. Is she in isolation? She's in isolation. Well, the first week she actually stayed in. um, Well, yes, she's in isolation. She's in COVID ward. So everybody's in isolation in the COVID ward. Um, In the COVID ward, the way she described it, everybody's in their own private room. And nobody's allowed in the hallways. 
um, the patients, you know, aren't allowed in the hallways. So they got they have to stay in their own rooms. And anytime anyone comes in to see them, they've got to have full PPE, you know. And I, the first time I saw it, it was so alarming. I was on FaceTime with her, you know, just talking to her about her lunch or whatever. And I see this nurse um, just doing something random, whatever, checking her blood or something. And I thought, I was like, it looks like you're on the set of the movie The Outbreak from like the 90s, I think. Terrifying, you know, and, and, and basically she's just seeing, she's just seeing eyeballs, you know, no skin, no contact, Mm -hmm. no, um, you can't even see someone smile, you know, you can't see the faces of the nurses. You can really just see eyes. And and, that's it. And what's been her, her progress? It's been bad. Just every day, it's worse. Um, I would say I'm on, you know, almost two weeks in the hospital, and the news every day has been worse. Um, and you know, at first there was a lot of optimism, like, "Hey, this is the virus. This is what it does. It takes a couple of weeks for the lungs to heal." Um, but you know, my mom's lungs weren't great in the first place. Uh, they they weren't strong. They've never been strong. And uh, the rest of, you know, she's not otherwise, the rest of her is health, not healthy, but, you know, not super sick. It's just her lungs. And every day the chest x-rays come back and her lungs look worse. And uh, they actually sent her home, which I think is a very weird part of the story. They sent her home after she had been in the hospital for three nights. And they knew it was a bad decision um, because she wasn't getting great care at home. And uh, she went home. She was home for two nights. And, you know, I kept checking in on her numbers. The other thing is she would get really loopy when her oxygen saturation was down. So I'd be talking to her. She'd just wander off in the conversation. One day she... um, she was talking to me and she told me I needed to pluck my eyebrows, which is like an extremely like normal mom moment, but also like didn't make sense in the context of us talking about like, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And she's like, you should pluck your eyebrows. Um, which is true, by the way, I do need to pluck my eyebrows, but <sighs> it's like, I'm growing, I'm growing them out for like during quarantine so that they'll be fabulously bushy at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mom didn't like that. So <laughs> she's at home. I didn't like the sound of her. Um, I thought her brain was affected a bit. So I had her call the nurse line and they said, go back to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so she went back to the hospital and she got readmitted right away. They said, oh, your chest, you know, your lungs look even worse. And the reason they sent her home was kind of the reason they sent my stepfather home. And two, they were like, you know, they sent her home with oxygen at least, but they were like, there's nothing we can do. Right. This virus is just, we, you just have to get through it. You just have to get through the period of time. 
you is it like the the, the most we can do is manage the symptoms and and hope mm-hmm. you can tough it out sort of thing yeah that's kind of an attitude uh, which frustrates the nurses when i talk to the nurses and doctors they're obviously very frustrated by it and when They've been dealing with this for well, how long has this been since in March? Since March, yeah. So many, yeah, many, many months, and mm-hmm. they're, they're frustrated, you know. But so when she got checked in again, I feel like they took it more seriously, and they kind of were like, "All right, she's going to be in here until the virus is over." And they started, which I wish they had done earlier. I don't know if it would have made a difference, but they started her on the trial. From Desivir, they started her on the trial of plasma with the antibodies. Yeah. Um, so they kind of started her on the only known sort of night work treatments for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were optimistic about that. And she was in there for, I think, a day. And then a day or two. And then... Um, actually was talking to her on FaceTime when the nurse came in and said, all right, we're intubating your mom, putting her on a ventilator. I'm sorry. That's not, that's totally the wrong timeline. It's hard to remember everything, but yeah. she ended up in the ICU. She ended up in the ICU. Right. And once she was in the ICU, the doctor said, Hey, there's a good chance she'll be ventilated. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the beginning of the coronavirus, there are a lot of articles, especially out of New York, that were like, 90% of the patients on ventilators don't come off. Mm-hmm. So we were really scared of the ventilator. Like, we were really scared of her getting to the point where she got to the ventilator. But the nurses were optimistic. They were like, hey, the ventilator will breathe for her. That's what she needs. She can't really breathe on her own. This will be good. Yeah. Um. So she got ventilated a few nights ago. And was that the last um, time you spoke to her? That was, yeah. Yeah. How how was she in terms of her, you know, her spirits? I mean, how was she feeling? Scared. Scared. She was quite aware of her situation. All right. If she was awake, which I think she was awake a lot, um, she knew her state. She could see her readings of her oxygen saturation. She knew, you know, they, they want you to have your oxygen saturation in like the mid nineties and above generally. She could see that it'd be in the eighties. So when they started talking about venting, she heard it. And that's when she started texting me about what she wanted, um, her wishes, uh, for after death. Because uh, it was really important for her to feel that certain things were um, going to be taken care of after she died. Yeah. So I think, you know, she was very, you know, she was actually quite lucid. She was aware of what was happening. She couldn't talk. She was on a full face mask. She couldn't really talk, but we could kind of talk at her and she could text back. And, uh, but when she got ventilated, that was it. So it was a very scary process. I was on the phone with her and the nurse came in and said, you know, your mom's dropping right now. She's crashing. We got to get her on the ventilator. Um, and she was aware we were, te- we were on the phone, you know? And, um, so that was it. That was, that was me saying bye. And 
I haven't been able to talk to her since then. Um, when you're on the ventilator, they kind of want to sedate you mm-hmm. as much as possible. And, you know, she, I guess she was, if she was conscious, she was fighting the tubes and she was trying to breathe on her own. And so, you know, at this point, um, and I think it was a couple of days ago, I talked to the nurse and just was very explicit that, you know, we want, we want her to be unconscious and unaware and on really good meds to make her feel high. <laughs> I said that to the nurse. I said, I want her to be on drugs that make her feel good. So she's not in pain. Um, and I don't want her, I don't want her to, I don't want her to know what's going on anymore because, you know, I got the call from the the ICU doctor yesterday and he said, you know, she's not, her chances are not good. And he expected her to go into heart failure, you know, pretty soon. Just because you you can't be at, you know, in your 80s and and 70s of oxygen saturation for days and weeks. And they're out, you know, what they said to me is we're out of things to do. We have nothing left. We have nothing left we can do for your mom. So if she doesn't do a miraculous recovery, which, you know, is actually still an option on the table of her lungs, that's it. You know, when next time she crashes, we can't bring her back out of it again. So I was just very clear, you know, keep her as doped up as possible. And the nurse said, you know, I'm really happy that you, your family talked about that and you're letting me know your desires because sometimes families tell me we want them awake because we want to talk to them and we want to, we, we, it's, it makes them, uh, maybe they have more hope if they're awake. And I guess, you know, I don't think I've given up hope, but I definitely don't want her to be so scared. And she's very scared when she's awake. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing is to think about how scared she is when she's alone in isolation. I think helping people was especially important to her. So if you talked with her, chances are you might get some advice (laughs) about your life or something. I mean, she sort of grew up in the Midwest and California. So she had this mixture of like Midwest sort of manners and passiveness passive aggressiveness, (laughs) you know, just not wanting to be in someone's business. But on the other hand, she had sort of the toughness you can get, especially growing up in the foster system in the 60s in California, which is how she grew up. And so she was tough. She was very tough. And she was a fighter and she would defend, you know, once you were in her circle, she'd, she'd defend you 
Um, what do you know about her experiences growing up? Where, and how did she come to from the Midwest to California? She, um, let's see, her parents were both from Elkhart, Indiana, and that's where she grew up. I'm sorry, that's where she was born. Her grandparents lived there. Um, but her, her mom, uh, her mom was an alcoholic, and her mom made a lot of poor decisions, and she was neglectful of her children. So she, she ended up bringing the children, her children. She had many, many children. She ended up bringing at least three of them, and I think maybe five, out west um, for a new life. And uh, I don't know all the details. Sometimes, you know, they were the kinds of things that I kind of wish I didn't know when I was a little kid, like that you shouldn't tell a kid. Mm. But on the other hand, I still don't think I knew all of the details about how she ended up in foster care and what, what the catalyst was for someone to say, hey, these kids are being neglected. Um, but she, they were, and my mom was, uh, left in charge a lot. And so I think that was a lot of her toughness and a lot of her, um, you know, ability to sort of fight for, for someone else because <laughs> she, she took care of her sisters. Um, she was lucky to end up in a couple of good foster homes. I think her sisters didn't have as much as great of luck. Was she still, did she stay in, in touch with any of her foster families? She did actually. We, one of her, um, one of her foster families, uh, was in Anaheim, California. And that was, she was in high school, I think when she was in that foster home. And so when we were kids, uh, growing up in, in Arizona, we would drive over there to Anaheim. Of course, we'd get to go to Disneyland, which was great. <laughs> um, and, we, and we'd stay with Mimsy and Papsy, they were called. They were really strict, actually, foster parents because they had a lot of foster children. And um, so some of my mom's parenting modeling came from that house. And so, you know, dinner manners and all sorts of things that seem really old fashioned. I'm sure if I told a kid today, um, what, like, what, like? <laughs> like, like if we were talked with our mouth full, you know, or, you know, we'd obviously get a warning, but then if we kept doing it or touching our hair or something like that. We had to stand up behind our chair and wait for everybody else to finish eating. Touching your before hair? We could finish. Oh yeah. 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 That's bad. You touch touching your, your hair is bad. You can't touch your hair. You can't touch your feet. Don't do any of those things. Don't touch your feet. Don't touch your feet not yeah. while you're eating. Especially not if That's they're gross. on the table. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't think you should. I mean, you shouldn't even go to the, come to the table barefoot. Right. You know, but if you do, you don't touch your feet. Right. So, yeah, we had to stand up behind our chair and just wait for everyone to finish eating. And then finish and then apologize and finish eating. So there are some, you know, she definitely picked up some old school habits of parenting that we, you know, we had to do when we were younger. And I 
don't, you know, I don't think they scarred me too much. <laughs> Maybe just a That's little bit. So are you and your siblings then do you check in with the hospital or are you just waiting for a call? Yeah, I call. I've got a whole schedule. I oh yeah, so early on. It's another going back to the karaoke part of the story. Mm -hmm. When my mom checked into the hospital the second time. She called me up and she said, I want you to be my medical power of attorney. I don't want it to be my husband. So we signed the paperwork over. So I'm her medical power of attorney and decision maker. I'm also the only one that's allowed to get updates from the hospital. Well, and they don't want every family member calling. So they only kind of want the one person who's the contact member. So I call every day. Uh, after rounds and I call and every night after like after the night nurse comes in and kind of is ready to talk so it's about 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. I call and then if there's any major differences they call and call me and then late now I've added calling at 6 a.m. too because I want to know how she did it overnight mm -hmm. um that when I got a call from the ICU doctor and it was a man that called me from the hospital number, I knew right away it was not good news, you know, and he was calling to tell me, your mom's not getting better. We have nothing else to do. He was very clear with me that CPR is not going to work if she goes into heart failure. Mm -hmm. So we signed a DNR. Uh, we had a family meeting and yesterday afternoon and, uh, My mom's wishes were to resuscitate. I mean, their mom's wishes were do everything possible unless I'm in a coma, like a persistent vegetative state kind of coma, to save me. Right. But we had a we had a family meeting. Her other wishes were, um, if any decisions get to, need to be made, I'd like my husband, my six children, and my sister to make the decision. So I've been, you know, the contact point for the doctors, the nurses the communication point, and then now the mediator for these end-of-life decisions. So um, this is the first one. So we had a family meeting with eight of us. And how did that go? Well, I think people had really good questions for the doctor that I hadn't thought of, which I really appreciate because it shows me that there's support and that I'm not alone in this, you know, that there's yeah. curiosity and good questions and real thought put into this. Mm -hmm. So there were some good questions like, um, you know, mom's wishes were do, you know, to resuscitate and, and do, do everything, you know, life-saving throws basically. Um, and, you know, one of the questions for the doctor was like, would you consider CPR life-saving? And when I called him later to ask him these questions, he was like, no, mm -hmm. CPR is not going to work. 
my my mom's sister I think was the only one who was not comfortable with the DNR. So we after I talked to you know we after I talked to the doctor we just had to explain to her really clearly. I know it sounds like we're giving up, but we're not giving up. She it won't work. And here is the doctor saying it's violent, you know, CPR. It's not good. It's not good for anybody to have to get it. So we did it, you know, we signed it. We signed that order and the doctor said, this is very good. This is what I would do for my mother. And, you know, I just reiterated, I want her to be unconscious and high as a kite. And the doctor said, I agree with you. That's how, that's what I'd want, you know. So, you know, it's hard. I think it's really hard to hear and accept, like, there's nothing else to do, you know. I'm very struck by the idea of her being on her own. I mean, I, I've spoken to folks who've talked about that experience and, you know, I've seen people talking about the experience of having a loved one and not being able to be there. Yeah. She has six children, adult children um, and grandchildren, all in the same city with her right now. So we could all be at her bedside if it wasn't for COVID. Yeah. And you know what? There's going to be a vaccine in you know, let's say within a couple of years, we'll be able to vaccinate the world. And it's like, if she just hadn't gotten sick now, now she could have potentially have survived through it, you know, or maybe they're going to have even more treatments um, that were better for people who have weak lungs, you know? I mean, that's, that, that's, one of the things that is so cruel about the public mishandling of it in the exactly. States is just the sheer cruelty of the carelessness with people's lives, you know? Well, you know, my stepfather, I'm so angry with him. I'm so angry. So when you're in the, when you're in the room with him, I, I mean, are you, are you able to to talk to him? Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm the only one, I think, talking to him right now. Of all my siblings, um, I promised that I would because I was made the power of attorney and getting the updates. I promised I would give him updates about my mom and include him in the information and the decision making. Right. Which really is quite nice of me considering how angry I am and I, the fact that I want to light him on fire right now. And so I've been using all my sort of professional skills to talk with him. So I talk to him every time I talk to the nurses or the doctors. Mm -hmm. I call him and we talk. Do you think of him as a, as an, a, as a particularly noxious employee? Yeah, I just think about it as like, yeah, someone I hate at work, but I got to talk to them anyway. And I keep it to the facts, you know, uh, and he cries every single time. 
I never cry, but he cries. And I don't really console him too much. I tell him the general kind of, I'm sorry, but I'm not like going to spend a ton of time consoling him. Um, I've mostly been able to keep it together. Uh, The other day, I think it was yesterday, I lost it with him though. Um, He started, you know, we were doing the thing that people, it helps people feel better where we're talking about my mom, uh, you know, being at peace at the end if she can and um, joining her father, her sisters, her brother. She's lost a lot of people already and joining them in heaven and how that's a thing that helps people feel better. And he is saying that and we were talking about that. And then he said, you know, your mom's had a lot of ailments, you know, in the last few years, and she's had a lot of pain. She has back arthritis, and with her weight, you know, that's been an issue. And so he said to me, maybe this is good thing that she's dying right now. And I lost it with him. I just went off. Um... I think that's probably one of the worst things I've ever heard him say, as many things as I've heard him say over the years, to try to make himself feel better. That she's dying, knowing that it probably was a result of his risky behavior. Um, So I, you know, I just said, you don't get to do that. You don't get to feel better about her dying. I want you to feel bad about it. (laughs) <laughs> I do. I want him. I said I will never forget it. I will never forget this, and I never want you to forget it either. I want you to think about this every day, and that's really mean spirited, but also it's true. And I just couldn't hold it back, you know. Um, it's it's just been very striking to me that from the time that we spoke first, that this had had all happened, and that it's just there's this kind of failure to realize that this is a one-way street you know what i mean that's exactly right it's just you know? like it's a one-way street you don't there's no do-over there's no um, it's so final yeah and i think so he's trying to make it not a one-way street and uh in his own way um so the silver mining there is once mom's affairs are done with, I won't have to talk to that guy again and for the rest of my life, I hope. Um, but actually, that's not true because my, my mom's been raising my niece. My mom and her husband have been raising my niece since my niece is eight and they've been raising her since she's been she was like one or two um so they're her parents really it's it's so heartbreaking to see her as well and to think about her going through the loss of my mom because that's her mom you know she's known um 
So that's where so we're you, at. you went. That's exactly right. You know, and I, I think for me, I don't think my siblings feel this way, but like my persistent question to myself and thought is like, what do I do? I'm kind of someone who can do pretty well. You know, my job for 20 years was doing incident management. So I sort of get into that mode. But the thing about incident management is like, typically you solve it, you resolve it with positive, you know, outcome. Um, I've never really had to do incident management where after working so hard at the end, you, you feel like, oh, that didn't, we just worked really hard for two weeks and then at the end it all didn't work, you know? Um, so I guess I've never had this feeling before. I've never gone through this kind of experience. And I just keep thinking, what do I do? And I think, and like you said, the answer is you wait. You hang out with your siblings. You talk to your friends. Go for walks. Go to the pools because it's freaking hot. Take anti-anxiety medication if that's the only thing that can let you sleep, which is what happened to me when she went into the ICU. Um, and you wait for that phone call. You know, I'm literally just waiting for the phone call right now. Either the phone call that's like, hey, things went really quickly and she's gone. Or the phone call that's like, Actually, the one that my doctors, her doctors kind of set up the expectation yesterday that the next phone call is the decision to withdraw care and take her off life support. Right. So right now, I think, you know, I just, oh, I pray, and I don't ever pray, but I pray that she is asleep. And not feeling pain. Hi, we just want to share with you the cutest sound. Ready? Here we go. Here we go. Let's sit down. Okay. Come on, Alice. <laughs> when your mom was raising you guys, I mean, what's your, uh, what other memories do you have of, of her as a as a personality? Because I've heard so many stories, you know. Oh, well, there's so many stories, yeah. you know. It was so important to her, you know, she had all these children, it was so important to her that we, no matter what, um, I think the thing that's, I think of a lot is she wanted us to have good memories, good memories, no matter what we were doing, make this a good memory. She wanted us to have good experiences. I think we didn't have things. We were very poor, but 
she knew that and she knew that even with being poor we could at least uh, have fun so a lot of my childhood was about you know maybe we were going to stay the night at Menzies and Papsies, but we got to go to Disneyland, you know, or we got to go to the, the beach. And the Disneyland thing is something she would save up, you know, all year for us to be able to go because um, it was important to her. What did she do for work? She did um, social work for the state, Arizona state. She specifically over the years, I, I know she worked on um, with CPS to start with. And that was really hard um, to sort of watch her deal with how hard it was because um, she did case management for CPS. Right. I think that's one of the hardest jobs out there. Um, and did she, do you, do you think that she sort of was drawn towards that because of her own experiences? Absolutely. I think somewhere along the way she realized that um, – it was really, she was proud of being able to say that she was helping people. And I think that was really, I think it was both important for her to help people. And I also think it was important for her to, to be able to tell people that, that she helps people. Mm-hmm. And she did. I mean, we had, oh my gosh, there was one point we, my father was working for Catholic social services at the time. And we just kept, hosting refugees at our house at the time there's a lot of Vietnamese refugees in Tucson so my memory of those years is just like person after person who didn't speak a lot of English and would cook us dinner with a lot of broccoli with a lot of broccoli <laughs> I was a little kid I hated broccoli so like all I could think about was like oh my god they're gonna cook with broccoli again um <laughs> Which, you know, in hindsight, what a wonderful experience to have had in in many ways. Um, And I think that that overwhelming, like, understanding of the world that, like, you're here to do what you can to help other people is something I got from my mom. What else did you get from her? (laughs) Uh, a lot of not not positive things too I think my relationship with her as an adult has been as you know um, complicated and uh, not always great Um, and of course it's taken me many years to realize that it's because I'm so much like her you know she's tenacious I'm tenacious um, I, uh, I love hosting people. I love making people feel welcome. And I, I definitely got that from her. <laughs> okay, say bye-bye now. Say bye-bye, Uncle Kevin. I said say bye-bye now. Say <laughs> goodbye, right there. Do 
Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. So do you want to begin by telling me um, what's happened since last we spoke? Yeah, the um, I think we spoke on Sunday, I think, Sunday the 5th. Yeah. And on the 6th, I guess that was Monday, um, my mom passed away. I'm told peacefully at 7.15 p.m. I had been in contact all day with the critical care team. I actually got a call in the morning from the palliative care team uh, being pretty clear with me that, you know, my mom was not expected to recover. She was completely dependent on life support um, mm-hmm. and that the doctor had said, you know, she wasn't coming back. Um, but not all the members of my family were comfortable with withdrawing life support yet still. Um, and while that was a decision ultimately that my mom had left up to me she wanted the family involved so we kept her kept her on life support that day and just every couple hours you know would get an update from the nurse or doctor which is more often than we heard from them previously just you know letting us know that she was um showing signs of failure in other ways you know, her organs were showing sign of shutting down. Um, so, uh, I talked to them maybe around six and gave them, told them, you know, after they let me know her latest results being worse Mm. and worse, told them that we wanted to withdraw the life support, which, which meant that she got to go in a controlled way and um, with the, you know, a lot of great meds, which, yeah. you know, as I mentioned, was important. So I, um, so they did, you know, the doctor actually had been telling me for the previous couple of days that while he didn't think there was much of a chance of any that my mom would recover, that if it was his mom, he might hope for a miracle and give it a couple more days on the, on the life support. But when she started failing, you know, her liver, her kidneys, sorry, her kidneys were failing. And then her vascular system was going, her circulatory system was going, her, her limbs were turning blue. Um, and so, you know, he changed his mind. He said, this is the time that I'd let my mom go. So we did. And they, they had said, um, when we take her off, it's going to go quickly. And it did. It was very fast after they um, took her off the vent. So I appreciate that. And I, they called as soon as it was over. Said that she went peacefully, you know, quickly. She was on 
comfort care meds, you know. And uh, he also said, you know, when we turned your mom over, because at that point, so you and I talked on Sunday, um, this was Monday, and she'd basically been on her belly for several days at that point. And um, then, of course, she was having these vascular issues, and they turned her over. They said she looked much worse than they realized, you know. Um, so it was really, you know, even more of the realization that that was the right decision and, and that, um, yeah, she wasn't coming back from it. Did you get a chance to say goodbye? I did. Um, we somehow managed for six people <laughs> to say goodbye. Um, they had a wonderful nurse, Nurse Dan, who was taking care of her at the end. And he, um, you know, he called me and he, he just left the phone open next to my mom's face. And each of us took turns. He left the room because... You know, he didn't want to be exposed to COVID for very long and to give us privacy. And so each of us, you know, we were texting each other um, for, for who should go next. But each of us got our time to, you know, in the case, I think some people, it wasn't a good, they were really hoping she would yeah. pull through. So I don't know that it was a goodbye so much as a, I love you. Um, in my case, it was a, it was a goodbye. I ended up love you, obviously. Um, she, um, yeah, so she heard from, from six of us. She had already heard from a couple others earlier in the week, a couple of her sons, and they felt good about where they were with her. Um, uh, was she conscious? And they say no, you know, like, uh, she's not meant to be. <laughs> I hope she wasn't. <laughs> You know, it's like on some level somewhere in the consciousness of being able to hear something like that when you're sedated. Of course, I do hope she heard us, yeah. but I also hope that she wasn't awake to know what was happening, you know. Were you all then on an audio, like a separate audio feed or was it on a Zoom call kind of thing or? It was all, this one was just audio, it was just an audio right. phone. Most people had decided, and actually the, the nurse had recommended, she didn't look good, you know, yeah. she'd been on her belly and she was swollen and, you know, um, yeah, the nurse uh, just suggested that we not uh, do video um, Plus it was easier because he didn't need to stand there yeah. and hold it. Um, so we just did a, a audio only through a speakerphone and then each person conferenced in the next right. person. And so, um, that's, that's how we, and then we sort of texted Well, we have, we were on this other app we use called house party and we were kind of on house party sort of telling each other when we were done. Um, 
there was one mistake. <laughs> one of somebody early in the chain hung up in a way that the phone was just we lost the call. So Dan's phone was just sitting there, kind of dead. Um, so I had to call the the front desk and kind of let them know and be like, hey, do you mind if we try that again? <laughs> and he didn't mind at all. He was fine. Um, so there were some technical challenges. Uh, I kind of wish we had been able to do that. And maybe we could have like every day. Uh, but I also know that it's a pretty big effort on their part. Once that call was finished, what did you do? I um, I was at my sister's house. She's in my she's in my social bubble for um, the virus, and so I go. You know, we spend time together and um, and with her children. So I was with her when um, we made the call. I also had another brother, my, one of my older brothers, who joined the call with me as as my strength and then we did fall kind of each of us kind of went to our own mental space I guess because um, it's really hard to know you know what to say to each other you know to give solace when you're yourself grieving you know yeah and uh, and I, I think the physical separation makes it also, it's like this. It's like one of the strangest experiences of your life, right? And then it's it's compounded by the physical separation and the the just the strangeness of the the moment that, that everybody's in, you know. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking a lot about. Which is, you know, that it is um, it is a rite of passage to lose your parents, you know. Um, so what are you doing for the rest of the day? Are you are you back at home or are you at, at, at Nicole's? Uh, I'm back at home, probably for the night. But um, I need to go pick up a very large photo of my mom that <laughs> will go <laughs> will go next to her casket. Um, and it's it's they close by six, so I've got to I've got to go there and make sure. Make sure it's going to work, and we have, you know, we have until Monday to figure it out. But um, it was hard to find a photo of her. It's actually really hard. Uh, she just, you know, I realized this. I'd never realized it before, but she just never wanted to be on that side of the camera. She wanted to be. She wanted to be up on stage singing karaoke, right? She wanted people to be entertained by her. And that was something she knew she was good at and, and enjoyed and had fun doing and had fun doing with other people. And that was a big part of her life. Um, but she didn't like pictures of herself. So, so that was a little, we had to do some cropping, that's for sure. <laughs> um, uh, what did she sing? What was her, what were her songs? Cause, um, cause actually you're, you've told me this before and you've, um, I think we talked at one point, and it became clear that um, the the level at which you and your mom understood karaoke was way beyond, <laughs> like you know, 
way beyond my level of understanding what this thing was about, you know. Oh, yeah. My mom started hosting karaoke in the 90s. Um, so not only did she sing really well and understood kind of a lot of nuance about karaoke, she sort of understood how to how to host it, too. Um, and how to host a good, you know, how to do a good rotation. The good rotation, that sounds crucial. (laughs) Yeah, how to make sure you don't have too many depressing songs in a row. And, you know, she had all these rules. What are are the rules? Well, so first of all, you know, you know, like, not too many or slash no eagles, because, come on, you can't be doing that. No eagles. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Okay, so no eagles. What else? She would help people with um, understanding their range. So she heard them do a song that they might have struggled with. She'd go up and recommend other songs to them that she felt, you know, you, I think you could do this other song by this other person. I think it would fit your range. And so she had a way of like, well, she was very good at this anyway, but she, she had a way of of helping while also <laughs> making you feel bad. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like in karaoke as in as in life, she just didn't she didn't like to see a situation where she she knew how to set it right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of it was about control for sure. So and you know, karaoke's fun. It's fun as hell and it's um she liked helping people get over their fear of public speaking or public performance. Um, but yeah, she'd also tell you if, if it was the wrong song. <laughs> so, <laughs> I definitely have had that told to me many times in my life, which songs I should not sing. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't know, it sucks really because I feel right now like I, you know, karaoke was a huge, she has her own karaoke machine at home for, you know, since we were all teenagers basically karaoke is like what we do at every party, every celebration. And so I now, because of her getting sick, perhaps as a result of, of a karaoke hosting night, don't feel like I ever want to do it again. You know, that's where I'm at with it, with karaoke. Too mad at it. Yeah. And it won't be the same without her. You know, I kind of, especially like as I got older, I, I sort of only kept doing it for her, you know, at parties and stuff like that. Um, so if she's not there, there's not really a person to do it for, you know. Hey, Lisa. How are you feeling? Uh, I mean, it was a little brutal, (laughs) I'll be honest. Uh, I had to use some of my, um, breathing techniques (laughs) to, um, to keep listening. What did you think when you were listening to it? Um, 
couple of different things. I find it um, I find it very um, compelling to listen to your experiences up close, you know. And as I think I mentioned in there a couple of times, the loneliness of the experience for your mum and when you talked about her being afraid. You know, when any of us think about, when you think about your parents being afraid, it's almost like they've become the children and you're the adult. You know, there's this sort of reversal that happens. You're so used to, ideally, the experience in your life is that when you're afraid as a child, they're the ones who comfort you. And then to to think of not being able to do that for them in that moment was very affecting, you know? Yeah. And... The fact that the entire series of experiences was mediated through technology as well. Like there's so much technology in the in the process of dealing with her illness. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. then and you and your family's connection with her as well in her last days all mediated through technology yeah and also her funeral you know after we recorded um we had a funeral for her it was just 10 people but in physical attendance but we um worked with the funeral home to have it streamed it was actually streamed on facebook which is not my was not what i would have preferred but it allowed so many people to attend her funeral virtually mm-hmm. i don't remember the count but i you know i want to say there were like 60 to 100 people who were watching um mm. do, you, do you know what's listening back as well to to that conversation was just thinking about your mom and the course of her life, right? Mm-hmm. And so I I had met her once, I think I mentioned there that I'd met her once and I'd heard about her a lot just through knowing you and um but I had I had no sense un- until we spoke about the depth of her life, you know what I mean? And the heart in her life. And it was lovely to get that sense of her as a person in the world, going through, trying to do her thing, screwing it up. Right. Like we all <laughs> like we all do. And exactly. L- yeah, listening to that. Um, well, I mean, it's hard. It's, it's actually like... I think where I'm at in grieving her is like you know when she died there's that shock of death and also obviously it was like a bit traumatic a couple weeks leading up to it but 
now it's, yeah, it's like I get a better, I feel like I can sense her as a whole person now. And I wonder if, like, that's part of losing a parent. Because when she was alive, you know, I had a lot of resentment toward her um, for mistakes that she made. And uh, it was hard to get past that. And now that she's gone, you know, it is easier for me to think of that, the depth of her. And, and I think I, I mentioned it in the recording, but like, I am very similar to her. And when she was alive, you know, I didn't like that. I didn't like that about myself. Because I resented her, which kind of made me resent the parts of me that were like her. And now I, you know, I appreciate what she did, who she was. And I don't think I have regret that I didn't figure that out while she was alive. Because I'm not sure I could have, you know? And that's why I wonder about how other people have processed their parents dying when they had kind of a complicated relationship. Yeah, and I think maybe there are there are some things that by their nature you can only it's only by going through them that you can learn what you have to learn from them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I do. You know, I've done a lot of therapy since I was, like, 20, probably. And um, I was always working on mom issues, always. I don't think she knew that, but it was always, like, you know, anger, resentment, shame, you know, all these feelings. And then she'd always come up. I mean, that's very typical in psychology that you talk about your mom or your dad issues, but, like, you know, and you know, because I talked about it with you and, and Elisa and like, it's, um, it was hard for me to let go of a lot of things. And so I was having, you know, professionals tell me all these things that I'm saying right now. And I just, you know, like you said, I had to live through it. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't necessarily make, have those observations and accept them back then. I think I needed to go through this, but also I'm glad that I had people saying it to me because I, I remember those things and I can call upon them now um, around, you know, the, the importance of forgiveness and how that's really just about me. That's, that's not even about other people letting go of um, resentment and anger. And I think I have done a ton of that. I really think I only resent my mom's husband now. <laughs> I might hold on to that one for a while. He's top of <laughs> top of a list of one. You know, it's like I've, I've let go of so much around my dad and my mom and my siblings and and then, but no, um, yeah, he's. Still but it's there. not. It's not to say that there's not reason for you to feel all that stuff, right? To feel right. Yeah. The resentment about things or anything like that. It's not about invalidating any of those things. It's just... No. 
I also had a thought when I was listening to myself talking, which is hard, um, about my mom's strengths when you were asking about it or kind of who she was as a person. And I think I called out things that I admire and, and feel like are important to me as well. And I wonder if um, I gave an accurate picture of her because it was so biased towards like what I value. Um, anyway, I hope, I hope I, I did her justice. My dad died, what, 1999? How long ago was that? 20... 22 years ago. 22 years ago. I still occasionally will have a cry. (laughs) Yeah. I'll still occasionally just... It'll just, uh... I can't even I can't even tell when it's coming mm-hmm. or when it'll it just happen. Pops up. Mm-hmm. Occasionally it'll just come around like a shower of rain or something. And and it almost feels good in a way. It it feels mm-hmm. like a very natural, healthy experience to to be emotionally alive enough to to feel it. Yeah. So I hope that is your experience over time too, you know. I've been doing, you know, I meditate. I try to meditate every morning and I use this app called Headspace. I've been using it for years and they have different series on different focuses like anxiety or, you know, sleeplessness. Um, And they have one on grieving that I never noticed before. And probably could have been useful for me last year. Um, and you sort of take a month of building up the ability to go to a relaxed, peaceful place within yourself um, through meditation. And then they guide you through remembering the person that you're grieving. And you, and in the, in the, in this guided meditation, you know, after like a month of building up, you finally get to think about the person and think about them in their kind of happy or settled place that you can remember. And then when you um, breathe in, you know, because you're focused on your breath, you breathe in their pain and their, um, yeah, their pain in life and what you perceive to be what their pain was in life. And when you breathe out, you breathe out like love and you breathe out your own sense of um, peace in what, in whatever way you may have that to give to them through your, through your memory. And, uh, it's powerful Um, I've been doing it for 10 days, that particular one. And I think the first nine days I cried, um, maybe the first like five or six days I cried remembering my mom's pain. Uh, but the remembering her pain, taking it from her and then giving her back, like my own sense of you know, like happiness and peace in my life. Um, 
you know, it, it's actually worked. Like I can remember her now and, and remember her in this different light. If I, if I remember her pain, you know, from life, from her childhood, from her, when she was sick, um, you know, last year when I, I was stuck in those memories and now I'm able to like breathe through them and, and think of her in a much more positive, peaceful light. Um, and not in like, I think she's now at peace because I don't necessarily believe in an afterlife, but in like, uh, she had peace in her life at times. She had the ability to have that peace. And I'm going to think about her that way instead of thinking about her as a woman who was in pain, you know? Yeah. Cause I, I, that, you know, this is part of my good mood lately too, is like, I finally got into a place where I'm like, I am so thankful for the, the things I've been able, been able to do that I know she wanted for me. And I know some of them she wanted for herself. And um, that makes me happy. Hi, Alex and I were just looking to say hi. Say hi, Alex. Hey. But you're not there. So call us when you can. Bye-bye. Say bye-bye. No, we'll get a talk, Alex. Use your words. Say bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs>